Hi, my name is Aki, and this is The Revolution. This is the second episode of This is The Revolution. Very grateful to have you if you're still listening to the show, which isn't a big ask because, you know, it's only the second episode. So if you gave up by now, one, you're not listening. You can't hear this, so go f*** yourself. And two, I don't know, that's pretty much it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. thank you for all those that are listening. I hope my words and my voice is sweet honey to your ears. And... I'm just really appreciative of everybody who has checked out the show so far, everybody who's donated to the show so far, which has been really dope. Um, just want to show a lot of appreciation and love to everybody, except for cops. So this episode is going to be focused on one of my favorite TV shows of all time, one of my favorite cartoons of all time which you're going to hear a lot because that's basically what the show is at the end of the day. I do want to educate people on politics, on revolutionary strategy, but I really just want to talk about my favorite stuff. Um, So I'm going to talk about Avatar The Last Airbender, which is very timely. It's currently on a streaming platform, which I refuse to plug right now. And a lot of people are watching it. So that's part of why I'm doing this episode, because I'm really trying to follow the algorithms here. Not going to lie to you. Trying to quit my job. So Avatar The Last Airbender was created in 2005 by Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Konietzko. He's a really cool guy. I don't really know him. Uh, But Michael got his start working on King of the Hill. Brian got his start working on Family Guy, actually. So they both had a long history uh, working in cartoons, doing animation before this. Hence why they were able to just pitch the show to Nickelodeon by basically being like, so we have an idea. This this bald kid is in the sky playing with bisons. And then then suddenly some water kids find them and then fire people come. And it sounds like a joke, but that's actually how the show was pitched. Um, And then it was picked up by Nickelodeon, which is pretty wild. It ran for three seasons from 2005 to 2008. It's a Nickelodeon original and borrows a lot from Japanese animation. It can be considered a Western anime in the vein of the boondocks. Can't really think of that many other Western animes. It also draws a lot from what white people call Eastern philosophies and religion. And in general, it it takes a lot from all over the world, really, and mushes it into this beautiful fantasy world. So for people that aren't familiar with Avatar The Last Airbender, it takes place on a planet divided into separate nations based on what elements is dominant in the nation. And by that, I mean what element can be bended or controlled by powerful humans within those nations called benders. I want to make a Futurama joke and I won't. I refuse. I really do want to. And it's the elements are drawn from a very famous band called Earth, Wind and Fire. That joke did not land. I knew it wasn't going to land. I didn't want to do it. My producers made me do it. And anyone that knows me knows I don't have producers. But anyway... So the world is split into four, basically, and all the there's smaller nations within. But for the most part, at the place we're at, there are the water tribes, which there are two of them, one at each pole, northern and southern. There are the air nomads, 
that exist at the four directions on the planet, northwest, east, and south. And there is the Earth Kingdom, which is generally unified with a central king in Ba Sing Se. But historically, that's shifted in a lot of different ways. And there is the Fire Nation. So that represents America and other evil civilizations throughout history. Just kidding. America is not an evil empire. Just kidding. It is. Oh, God. Almost got you there. But yeah, the show starts with Avatar Aang. So an avatar is basically someone who can control all four elements. So I mentioned benders before. So not everyone's a bender at all. In fact, most people aren't benders. And the next show, Legend of Korra, gets into the inequalities inherent in that. But Avatar The Last Airbender doesn't really quite get into that. So the show follows Avatar Aang, the last airbender, and two siblings from the Southern Water Tribe, Katara and Sokka. So Avatar Aang has failed his Avatar duties. An Avatar is basically supposed to defeat the great evil, be the classic hero, restore peace to the world, balance, all that good stuff. But Aang has been frozen in ice for 100 years, and in that time... All air nomads have been wiped off the face of the planet by the Fire Nation. But Aang is eventually discovered by the siblings Sokka and Katara. And Katara is able to waterbend. Sokka isn't, which is not really important for this episode. So Katara ends up becoming one of the most powerful waterbenders in the world. And Sokka shows that you actually don't need to be a bender to succeed in this world, especially if you have a boomerang. And a whole lot of suave, lustful kind of vibes going. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. Come on, Appa. You can do it. Yep, yep. I want to mention Appa, the giant flying air bison that the crew rides throughout the show. He, much like Aang, is the last of his kind. He's also the main character of the show, secretly. So together, this team is on an adventure to destroy the Fire Nation liberate all people on the kind of earth that they're on and bring peace and harmony to the world as an avatar and their crew should. So this episode is season three, episode three, a little farther into the show. It's called The Painted Lady. The episode starts with the Aang gang resting by a river after infiltrating the Fire Nation in disguise from the previous episode, which is amazing. You should watch the entire series. So while they're bathing in the river, they realize it's heavily polluted and filled with all sorts of nastiness. They travel along the river looking for food when um, they come across this village. And at this point, they're flying on the back of Appa, who's recently been covered in the sludge of the river. And they decide to leave Appa behind since it's awfully suspicious and a flying bison in the sky. The last one on Earth is a quick message to the people that they are, in fact, the Ang Gang, the Avatar crew. So they come across that village. Um, and to reach it, they have to get a ferry. So they meet a man named Doc, who's uh, the ferry ride owner. And Doc explains to them that their village actually used to be a wonderful fishing village. Until the Fire Nation came. 
the Fire Nation built a military factory on the shores of the river, which led to tons and tons of pollution as like the metal factory, which was used for weapons, uh, flooded sludge and waste into the river. And eventually the river became unusable. So the, these fishing people could no longer fish. So they enter the village and lo and behold, the people in the village are sick. They're hungry. They're dying. Not exactly dying because this is a kid show. And Katara, the waterbending sister, expresses a lot of concern. She's like, what's going on? Is everyone okay? Why is everyone sick? Can we help them? We must help them. We must help them. And Sokka, her brother's like, nah, we have a plan. And at the end of the day, I mean, I think this is a good point that Sokka makes. You can't simply help everyone and need to focus on our role, which is defeating the Fire Nation. And we'll liberate these people, essentially, or support them by defeating the big, bad, evil man and his evil empire, essentially. So they leave defeated and return to their camp. But when they get there, or later that night, they find out that Appa, the real hero of the story, by the way, if anyone has actually watched the show, you know Appa is one that carries the team both figuratively and literally. Appa's sick from the pollution. So now they have a self-interest, particularly Sokka, and making sure that Appa is actually healed and okay. So they return to the village the next day looking for medicine, and they find that the villagers have actually been fed and treated by a mysterious spirit, the Painted Lady. So the gang is happy that people have been helped. Sokka notes, once again, that the Painted Lady would actually have to do this every day forever to ensure that these people are no longer hungry or sick. And makes a little joke about, you know, if they really wanted to help, if this Painted Lady really wanted to support the village, that she would just blow up the factory. So that night, Aang ventures out to solve the mystery of the Painted Lady and figure out who she is. And Aang being the bridge, the avatar, the connecting figure between the spirit realm and the human realm, he's like, I can negotiate something. But he in fact finds out that the Painted Lady is secretly Katara. Instead of like getting mad at Katara or shaming Katara for what she's done, Aang volunteers to support Katara and Katara explains that she's going to destroy the weapons factory. She's going to blow that shit up and end the pollution and the poverty of the village for good. So Ang and Katara work together to destroy the factory. And almost immediately, the village is attacked by a squadron of Fire Nation soldiers. The soldiers reveal that the food and medicine that was used to treat the people in the village was actually stolen and blame the villagers for stealing the medicine and food and blame them for destroying the factory. It's also worth noting that the Fire Nation people here feel like they're completely in the right. They even call these conquered people neighbors. Like, we tried helping our neighbors, and this is, this is what we get? Insubordination? So in the middle of the annihilation of the village, Aang and the rest of the gang create an elaborate ruse using a combination of their different powers. Appa's, like, roaring. Aang is using airbending. Uh, water bending secretly while Katara is using her own water bending to create this like beautiful mist and basically convince the Fire Nation soldiers that she is the real painted lady, this ethereal spiritual force coming to destroy them. And it scares off most of the soldiers, except for the leader, who the painted lady, 
Katara crushes in a one-on-one combat scenario. So after saving the village, the gang of the villagers work together to clean the river after Katara gives this like rousing speech about, you know, I'm not the painted lady, but I'm pretty cool. I know I'm a waterbender and y'all hate me. But if you want good things to happen, you have to do collective action. So they decide to work together to clean up the river. Everyone's really happy, cheerful. And at the very end, Katara is visited at night by the spirit of the painted lady herself. And the episode ends. The concept I want to talk about today is the idea of strategic property destruction. So I'm not drawing from any particular author today. I'm trying to not invent a new theory, but to th- synthesize. Synthesize. This is where people have realized I have a list that I hide a lot. Uh, So the concept I want to talk about today is called strategic property destruction. And I'm going to be using my own definition here for that. It's a form of escalation that seeks to fully halt or end the operations of an oppressive institution. It can also be a tool of encouraging the public into action or threatening an oppressive force. So to break that down, that's one, it disrupts the system. Two, it inspires other resistance. And three, it threatens a violent system. And it does that using three mechanisms or by really holding on to three ideas. One, it doesn't hurt people. Two, it attacks extremely unpopular structures in the eyes of the public it is trying to move. And three, works only if the public thinks it's justifiable. And the last point is really important. I'm not encouraging anything on this show. I'm just trying to explain how things work. But we'll say that property destruction that isn't seen as justifiable by the public is tricky because if you're trying to move the public and win the public over, if you're doing something that is seen as inherently against the public, which a lot of people feel that property is part of what makes America what it is, the right for people to own things and keep them separate from other people is very much in a deeply held belief here. And yeah, it really is worth noting that strategic or non-strategic property destruction can turn the public against you, draw the violence of a system against an already vulnerable group of people. Where if you're if someone's blowing up a factory, like we saw in the episode, the Fire Nation quickly blamed the villagers themselves and continued to oppress them. And obviously the real problem here is the oppression that the villagers are facing, but a lot of people, particularly people in the Fire Nation, which are the vast majority of the public here, really don't care about that. They're more interested in the things disrupting their everyday lives and their ability to live that life, regardless of who's being harmed in the process. It's also worth noting that historically, white supremacists and the police have destroyed property as an attempt to blame protesters. And that way, they can then justify whatever violence is used against the protesters. So, I I will encourage a lot of action through this podcast, but. Property destruction isn't one that I recommend for movements to engage in. It's really for people to understand why it happens and to no longer allow them the actions of property destruction to be used against movements. To understand that people can be justified in their anger and that property destruction can be extremely strategic 
given specific circumstances. And I think there are many circumstances that are arising and will continue to arise, but it is a very thin line. And I don't think movements in mass should be engaged in it until and unless it is clear that the public supports it. The reality is once the public sees property destruction as more justified, it does open up a whole new set of tools for those engaged in revolutionary action. That is important. And it is only because of our culture that I think that property destruction is often unstrategic here in the United States. So the first example I want to bring here is the Ogoni tribe of my nation of Nigeria. They live in southern Nigeria in the Niger River Delta. They're historically a fishing people, similar to that of the village in this episode. But in recent history, the Dutch company Shell, the oil company, has dumped vast amounts of waste and oil into their water supply. This has actually been happening for decades now, and it's destroyed their way of life. So for anyone that knows anything about Shell, they basically, they, they have their hands in every single department and have influence in every part of Nigerian life, at least on the governmental level. There was a huge WikiLeaks uh, series that showed that. So it's important to note that these oil spills happen dozens of times a year and often go unreported by Shell. Shell just doesn't care. It's like, who are these people? Their water is nothing to us. So the Ogoni youth for the last two decades and a little bit more had taken up arms and started hijacking oil tankers and blowing up refineries and stealing oil from those refineries. While that might be unpopular from the outside looking in, the actions have been popular among the Ogoni people for years and stolen oil sustains entire villages. Their disruptive acts are against the clearly hated structures of Shell and are supported by the people who see it as justified, who understand that they are merely fighting back against a system that has literally destroyed their ability to eat. So they're through the theft also, which for me, I see that as a form of property destruction too, looting. They are able to create wealth for their village, even though that comes with a lot of problems as they try to refine the oil themselves. But at the same time, they're able to stop Shell from really functioning and hurting their bottom line and serving as a threat to Shell, basically saying that if you continue to do what you do, we will destroy you. We will prevent you from making money. And that's what you really care about, not human lives. And in fact, at a certain point, the Nigerian government convinced the Agoni revolutionaries, uprising leaders to drop their arms simply by providing them jobs, good quality jobs, which the Nigerian government then took away once it was able to crush their movement fully. Another example closer to home and more recently for people is the attempted burning of the federal office in Portland where federal agents were being deployed. So protesters chose a target that has now become notorious as a perpetrator of what many in the public see as fascist tactics, the literal kidnapping of protesters, the disappearing of protesters. So disrupting offices can prevent the operations of secret police, which basically that's what we have right now, not dissimilar from the Dai Li, which is a whole other episode for Avatar fans. And also they can engage in the destruction of files, which you'd be surprised how many police stations 
and government buildings still utilize pen and paper, though they are becoming increasingly digital. And stealing government documents has been a tried and true tactic that has had a huge impact on our ability to move forward in this country. Though obviously we haven't moved forward much, if at all, really, in a lot of ways. But in 1971, activists broke into FBI headquarters in media Pennsylvania and discovered and stole a lot of files revealing COINTELPRO, which for people that don't know, that was an FBI program to basically surveil activist leaders in the United States, murder many of them, and destroy the public lives of the others. That included the murder of Fred Hampton, the 21-year-old Black Panther leader who built a multiracial coalition in Chicago. He was murdered in his sleep. That includes the threatening of Martin Luther King, asking him to kill himself and trying to publicly shame him. That includes targeting indigenous leaders, includes targeting the leaders of the Puerto Rican liberation movement. So that act of theft and property destruction through breaking into the office in the first place and seizing these files very much helped shape our understanding of the FBI and history. Without it, we would not know what we know today and it wouldn't inform how our movements have been shaped. Um, Part of it is the impact that we don't want to rely on centralized leadership as much as we used to because we realize that the FBI will crush them, will kill them. It's also really interesting that as Fire Nation citizens, which is very much what we are, we seem deeply interested in property destruction, but there's not nearly as much coverage of the fact that people have been hit and struck by vehicles during protests that have been going on, where right-wing people, supporters of police in general, have not that you have to be right-wing to support police, but in this situation, you kind of do. If you believe that police are a just institution, despite being built to capture enslaved Africans, despite being built in the North to shut down and murder labor union activists. If you know the history of police and know how they were slowly transformed into their modern incarnation, which is the thing that happened not that long ago, police were generally known to be a highly corrupt organization for most of the early part of the 20th century. It's only until recently, especially with the advent of propaganda and police TV shows that we've seen such a fervent support for police, especially among white people and people who feel like they'll benefit most from the maintenance of the system. It's interesting that we don't spend as much time talking about the literal murder of activists that's been going on and the attacks against activists that's been going on in this country. But, you know, many moderate people, many liberal people will spend a lot more time complaining about a Wendy's or a uh, police station or a police car. And it, it speaks volumes about who we are. We are the fire nation because that's what we care about. We care about the military factory more than we care about the fact that that factory has been poisoning and killing people. So I know me talking about property destruction, especially on the second episode, definitely is risky. I know this can all be a little uncomfortable. 
But I chose to do this episode because it's pressing. We're seeing property destruction happen all over this country. And if you can understand the plight of the fishing village in this episode, if you can understand the motivations of the people of the Ogoni tribe, then you should understand the destructive elements of our current protests. If you don't, you should really question how much you value Black lives in the United States and what you care about more, property destruction or the literal public murders of Black people. And you may say, I don't, I don't care about the, the property destruction. I care about what the public thinks. I want to remind people that you, if you're listening to this, you're part of the public too, and how you respond shapes other people's perceptions. And as leaders of nonviolent movements, especially, I feel like we have an obligation to make sure that the public does not turn against our movement because someone has taken direct action to solve a real problem. But someone has decided to end violence by engaging in the destruction of property. And that's important here. These are just things. These are buildings. These aren't human lives. These aren't parents who will not go home to their children. These aren't friends who will never be seen again. It's just buildings and things. And how you respond to all that really does matter. So thank you for checking out the second episode. I appreciate you. And hope you have a wonderful revolution. Goodbye. Also, cops aren't workers and they shouldn't be in the AFL-CIO. What are you doing? You're taking blood money.